Welcome back to the Real Sports Science Podcast. What is this, episode 26? Matt, what is that jersey you're wearing? Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> David, we need to start again. It's, I swear it's not 26. It's at least 27. Oh, it's 27. It's 27. <laughs> <laughs> We've been so ready to get Let going. And I said it wrong. This is the Real Sports Science Podcast, episode 27. Matt, how are you doing? Stand up for the folks who are watching this on YouTube. I don't know what I've been saying, but I've been saying the right things. For everyone listening on Spotify or just not on YouTube, Matt is wearing a Vancouver Canucks Hughes, number 43. What a thread that is. That looks unbelievable. Vancouver Canucks looking good on you. Loving it, mate. That's hilarious. 100%. Also, good timing. Getting ready for them hockey. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and the new thing that Matt learned was that they—they're the fight strap. You didn't know what that was. For anyone who doesn't know what a fight strap is, there it is. It's on the back of your jersey, and it tucks, it attaches to your hockey pants, so that when you get into a fight, the person you're fighting can't pull the jersey over your head. And if you don't have your fight strap on and get into a fight, you get a ten-minute misconduct. So. Fight straps on. So let's say first. I'm always keeping, I'm always strapped now. I'm always strapped with the, <laughs> the fight strap in. Let's go. When I'm walking out in pub- public. <laughs> whoa, shit, whoa. Shit in the mitts. Uh, this is the Real Sports Science Podcast with Matt and David, episode 27. Let's go. We have an absolute banger of an interview today. Tom Swales, the first Canadian on the podcast, and definitely not the last Canadian. It was so nice just hearing my own accent on the other side of the call. Wasn't it, Matt? It was indeed. Um, I felt very out of place. Uh, I've sounded extremely English to myself. (laughs) Um, Yeah. It was unbelievable. It went longer than we were expecting, and it was so amazing. So we've got that coming up in about five minutes. So stick around for that. But first, Matt, how are you doing? How's your week been? I'm doing really well. It's it's been a long week. I've gone through some UK SEA assessments already and I've just got my final one. Um, Yeah, it's been stressful, interesting and great experience. Uh, Met a lot of great people as well. And uh, yeah, just... But but they've they've been going good? Yeah, yeah, they went okay. They went decently well. Um... I've never experienced something like this, so it was uh, good to get myself out there. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. How about you, though, David? Good week, busy week as well. We've barely talked. I have a funny story. Um, last week now, yeah, last last week, my girlfriend and I were in town. <laughs> we were we were in town just getting coffees and whatever, and uh, and after coffees, went to the bookstore, blah blah, blah and then she's like, oh. Oh, David, like, I really, I really want to go get a sunbed. And being, being this supportive boyfriend, I was like, fine. Yeah, that's fine. Like, let's go. And, but I wasn't just going to stand around for 10 minutes. And she's like, oh, like, come, come get a sunbed with me. And I was like, yeah, fine, fine. And last year when we went to Tenerife with the boys, I went like a couple times. So I was like, I think I actually have a couple minutes left in Miami sun. (laughs) It's called in Mufra, right? So so I was like, yeah, fine. Oh go, <laughs> go in. Go in, right? She's like, uh, oh, yeah, you have nine minutes left. I was like, say less. 
give me my give me my nine minutes right and she's like there's no stand there's yeah. no sit down beds left there's only this stand up one i was like that kind of sucks because you're just standing there like an idiot for nine minutes you know but i was like fine fine <laughs> right <laughs> side note it was hilarious this the city the lying down ones you just lie down and like close your eyes take a quick nap right the standing up ones there's a there's like a floor plate and you can make the floor plate shake at like certain intensities and so i'm just there stood there like <laughs> it was hilarious mate what so, is it at least in a private room it's not just right by the window of the shop and david yeah, just yeah, said like my belly's just like <laughs> <laughs> yeah no no it's like in a private room just getting all he can't see into the sun pit. anyways unreal anyways they didn't tell me and we found this out later but they didn't tell me that they've recently changed the bulbs from that sunbed and so they're much stronger because they're brand new matt i have never been so burnt in my life I <laughs> I didn't train. So this was Sunday. I didn't train Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday because it hurt to put clothes on. <laughs> like it was, 50 shades of red with David. <laughs> Hello. One shade of bright red. I've honestly, <laughs> I was stressing out Sunday night. I was I can't go into public looking like this. I'm glowing. And every single time I'd move, it would just be <laughs> pain all over my body. <laughs> You must have looked like an absolute space cadet. Sunglasses, red as hell, in the middle of winter, just walking down the yeah, high street, thinking you're all that. I know. What? I know. It was. Embar- I've never been so burnt in my life, and everywhere, everywhere, yeah. it was brutal. My chest is just peeling off at the moment. Um, I'm really brown now, though, or browner than I was. But let there me you tell you, that was Little not Kendo. <laughs> No, it wasn't. Not as enjoyable as what we've got coming up, David. What a transition. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Matt, why why don't you take us into the So who do we have coming on? Oh, we're back. We've just done it again. Yes, we've never left. (laughs) We need to to start a tally of how many times (laughs) we do that. So this episode, we've got Tom Swales on, who I had not previously met or, or known who he was um, until David told me about him and I was just thoroughly looking forward to it. And it was not until I hopped onto this call, the, you know, this this call, um, that I just thought this was going to be a great interview because he hit it right off the bat, started talking, and from then we just started learning, didn't we, David? Do you want to tell us a bit more what we spoke about? Yeah, we talk about how he knew he wanted to get into physiotherapy and his journey through physiotherapy, his, a little bit about his time with Alpine Canada as well, and, and kind of going through S&C and then leaning towards physio, and, and how he set up his business that now he runs in Barrie, Ontario. Um, with his wife and he just he talks about kind of his his fundamental theories or underpinnings of how he works and honestly it was i have never written so fast in my life i feel like i just had a free lecture um and i'm listening it i'm listening back to it absolutely this week we really hope you enjoy it as much as we did we can't get we can't wait to get him back onto the podcast, hopefully in the near future as well. Um, so whether you're a physio, whether you know you're a student, whether you're just a gen- general person with bones, um, 
listen to this because there's so much that you can learn, not only, you know, anatomy wise, but also just like fundamentally how to think through problems, whether that's as a physio or anything else, how to communicate, how to how to get buy in from people. Um, so really, really hope that you enjoy it. This is Tom Swales, episode 27. Let's get into it. So we are so excited to introduce our next guest on the Real Sports Science Podcast, Tom Swales. He's a physiotherapist and strength coach over in the great white north of Canada uh, with a passion for human movement. So he's the, the founder and creator of the AMT method and the Advanced Movement Therapy Certification and Education Platform. Uh, he's also the founder of Physio and I'm guessing the plus stands for and performance wellness, but I'm not actually too sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I read that and I was like, oh, I'm not sure. But anyways, plus uh, he, yeah, plus other stuff. He, he's worked with, with a ton of different populations, um, professional NHL players, hockey players, professional ski players, Kelsey Surwa, who we have to thank for this interview for, for mentioning Tom's name while we were studying for exams many years ago. Um, so Tom, thank you so much for coming on. We really, really appreciate your time. It's snowing here in the UK today. Is it snowing in Canada? In Canada. Uh, this Barry. part of Canada, no. We got uh, blue skies, but there's there's snow on the ground. Yeah. It's, uh, if, it's slowly starting to warm up through the day. If anything, it's just so, nice having another was... Canadian on the podcast. We've been, <laughs> we've been severely underrepresented on the Real Sports Science podcast. <laughs> So that's well, nice. Now, I feel way out of debt. <laughs> I think we should just use the entire time to pick on Matt. Yeah, yeah. I, my accent has never sounded so peculiar to me now <laughs> after hearing you both just chat now for the last 10 minutes. Yeah. I feel so out, out of place. Well, Matt, don't uh, feel bad because I spent four years in Iowa on a soccer scholarship mm-hmm. and everyone's was like, oh, you're so Canadian. I'm like, I don't hear this. And then I came back home for Thanksgiving in November. And I'm like, oh crap, we do say that. <laughs> I started hearing the outs and the house and like all the things that we That's say. Funny. I'm like, yeah, oh my God, we do. And I started to notice the accent because they, they, you know, different States, they, they speak differently and they draw out their, a lot of their uh, nouns. And uh, I was like, okay, yep. And then, of course, I would lose a little bit of it. And then when I come home from summer, I go back and they're like, oh, you're all Canadianized again. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> oh, uh, imagine that. I'll, my whole nouns and everything will change. I'll go back to work later just saying yep. about and yep. all that sort and of stuff. Day. I'll learn some new t- terminology. That's exactly. right. That's right. Tom, to just kick things off, it would be great to just kind of get an idea of your background some of the experiences that you've had along your career leading up to kind of what you do now and just and it's just an idea of what you do now both kind of at at Physio as well as you know the the advanced movement therapist and that kind of certification that you've you've um yeah founded yeah so the it stems from you know everyone a lot of people's stories like well i was in sports and i got hurt a lot and i I went to physio and I liked it and this, that, and the other. And I would say my interest in, in physio in general, or just like human performance is back as a kid, I would watch gymnastics and soccer and whatnot, and I would imitate and mimic, but I, I, I was able to break down the movements enough in my head to copy them. So when I was you know 10 years old, I was watching men's floor routine gymnastics 
and how they would round off and do all these backflips. And I just went in the backyard and started doing it. They weren't pretty, but I figured it out enough in my head that I'm like, oh, I can do back handsprings. Um, and then, you know, and then moving forward, I loved every sport. Um, I appreciated, you know, everything that I, that I do. I just, I love watching it and then breaking it down and trying to copy it and then feel it out to really learn, you know, is what I'm feeling, what I'm seeing. And if so, then, then I can really have an understanding of what muscles are working. Um, so I really carried that interest all the way through. And I knew in high school, one of the few classes I was actually good in was exercise of physiology uh, <laughs> or gym class, especially, but everything else, it was like, nah, I actually didn't even have the grades to get into university in Canada because we needed OAC. We need grade 13 at that time. So that's how uh, right, I, grade 13 classic Ontario. Yeah. So I didn't have the OAC grades to get into uni here. Um, so I got my soccer scholarship down in Iowa. And then I did my, my bachelor's down there in athletic training, which is athletic right. therapy here in Canada. So that gives me kind of like that sports background, but it's very similar to physio. It's just, it's all orthopedic sports from, you know, on, on field all the way to uh, clinical back on to return to sport. And then mm. upon graduating that I took a year off to kind of just gain experience. And then I didn't even get into physio school the first two times I applied because my grades weren't good enough. And I knew I'm like, well, if I don't get in, I'm just going to keep applying because I knew like, that's what I want to do. So the second time applying, I actually got rejected from everywhere. I got into a couple of the interviews, but Western was the first one to reject me. But then they called me at the end of July and they're like, and Donna, Donna Beer, she's our, our lovely admin that, that works there. She calls me up. She's like, hi, Tom, this is Donna uh, from Western. So we got into a situation where our top choices went someplace else. And our second choice is went someplace else. And your name is at the top of the rejection list. Are you still interested? So I was like, so what you're telling me is I'm at the top of the shit pile. She's like, yeah, I'll see you there in September. Click. Right? No way. <laughs> so before they could say no and change their mind, I'm like, I'll see you then. But, yeah. you know, and then once, once I got in, I'm like, okay, this, this is where I knew I wanted to be. And then it was just that... Uh, I always had this desire. I wasn't the smartest, but I was always certain and I was good at the information I knew. So I would always tell people, I would tell my, my kids, I'm like, if you know 100% of 75 is better than 50% of 100. So people getting 100s on tests, when they actually go into real world application, they might remember 50% of it. Hmm. Whereas I'd rather get a 75 on a test and know 100% of that and then apply 75% into the real world application, uh, population. Hmm. So taking mm. that mindset of, I know enough, I'm not going to know everything, but I know enough to actually make a change and continue that process of, I want to know more. It just made me more excited. And then after graduation, I worked for a large clinic here in, in Barrie. Uh, I learned some things. I met some great people. I learned what isn't good treatment. Uh, and I learned like what I don't want to do. And then I got a job with the Canadian Alpine ski team where Kelsey and I first met. Uh, she was an athlete and I was the physio for at that time, both the men and the women until they found a physio for the women's team. And I did that for a two year, two year contract as a physio. And I would help out with the strength conditioning side of, of things as well. Hmm. And then once 2009 came around, my contract ended. Uh, I met, I found a great mentor. There was a local physio, Doug Freer, who I knew that if I wanted to 
really jump to the next level. I, that's who I knew I needed to be with. Um, and he taught me a lot to see things differently, uh, even outside the realm of, of physio. And then, um, and then my beautiful wife and I, we opened three years later, our, our 4,000, well, 5,000 square foot facility concept of movement. And we've been here for a decade now. Um, and it's been, it's been great. We've got, we've started where Kylie was at the front desk. We had 4,000 square feet. I was the only physio. We had two moving coaches, one massage, and we would work from seven to seven. And we had our little dog at the front. She would be there 12 hour days for like the first year almost. And then all of a sudden, uh, a really great physio found us. She's like, Hey, I want to work here. Like, please. Yes. Right. Cause we were busy. We were busy right yeah. off the hop, which was great. We were very fortunate. We were 12 hour days and a two week waiting list. And, uh, now we've just grown by kind of keeping this culture and this mindset of you, what we do is never good enough. Like there's always room to be better. There's always room to learn more new information. There's always room to, you know, to provide better service. And with that mindset and, you know, um, carrying through the entire clinic and we all teach and we all do mentorship every week. We do masterminds every four weeks or every uh, quarter. Uh, everyone wants to learn. Everyone just wants to be that, that top clinician, which is great. And everybody wants to teach everybody and show what they know. And that's created this, uh, um, you know, systematic system of, of learning and, um, it just makes it exciting. So, uh, you know, I've done over like a hundred courses and certifications and then, then it gets confusing and convoluted, but we'll get into that later, but <laughs> we've got now 20 staff and 5,000 square feet and, and, you know, and we've been, we're one of the top rated clinics in, in the Barrie area, North of Toronto. I mean, just wow first of all wow that was amazing just to listen to all of that and i just want to say like it's amazing to hear especially that you as you said everyone wants to keep learning and to develop an environment from something so small and to make it into everyone is on the same page trying to just improve on themselves is, is a great thing to hear so that's that's amazing and i just wanted a quick question you talked about you did a bit of strength and conditioning as well as physio and i was wondering how did how did you find balancing both those sort of aspects because you know we hear a lot about the role conflicts between physio and ssc coaches sometimes and i just wondered like how was it so we had so we had our head strength coach and then at the time when i was at the developmental team uh budgets aren't always as good as the world cup team so one of the assistant coaches who's a good friend of mine and he's actually out in bc um he 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 took over like the strength conditioning side of things so he was the assistant coach on hill but he was a strength and conditioning coach off hill and then we would kind of split that. But we had a, we had a head strength coach, uh, sports scientist, uh, Dave Ellis, who oversaw all of the programming from remotely. So he would kind of handle all of the men and women's uh, programming. So there was, there was a hierarchy. Now, <clears throat> I still do contract work. I was just in Chile with uh, the World Cup team uh, for a couple of weeks with two of the athletes. And I've come to realize now, and... Same with, you know, my friend, Andrew, who's now actually the head strength coach for Alpine Canada. If you want to be really good at something, stay in your lane, right? When I worked with my NHL athletes, I was doing a lot of the strength conditioning and I enjoyed doing that, but I would, it was always a blend because they would come in. I taught them how to self-assess. I developed something what's called a SAM scan, a self-awareness movement scan. They would look at their cerebellar functioning. They would look at balance, mobility, global flexion extension. So they do these whole body scans that took maybe 90 seconds. 
And then if they caught something, they could correct it right away before we started training. So they prime their nervous system, they create, they fix the imbalances, and then we get to work. So I'd always kind of blend that stuff. But I've learned also, you know, in periodizing their programs, I don't like doing that as much as kind of like the, the neuro stuff and the movement quality stuff and the tweaking. And so I leave that when it comes to the, you know, with working with Alpine Canada, Andrew and I both decided, I'm like, look, you love numbers. You love flow charts. You love stats. Great. I hate it. I, I, I appreciate it. I don't, I like monitoring it. I hate collecting it. I hate analyzing it. <laughs> so he's like, great. Cause he's like, I hate doing the rehab stuff. Awesome. We're going to, but we speak the same language. And because both of us have, you know, he's delved into a lot of like, he, he tried to start doing a lot of the, um, you know, SFMA and, and some of the medical stuff. He's just like, you can't learn everything. Cause if you hmm. try to learn everything, then you don't really become good at anything. Now it's not to say that you can't be a specialized generalist. So hmm. if it goes in line with your current body of knowledge, then run with it. But if it's starting to veer you away too far in one direction, then you, you have to make a choice. Hmm. Right. Hmm. So I love the performance side of things, but I know my heart and, and passion is not in designing a bunch of programs for athletes and monitoring those. I like measuring stuff, but I'll let somebody else who loves doing that do that. And then I'll work with that person. Mm. It's just, you know, when I was younger, I'm like, yeah, I can do everything. Right. And you can be pretty smart at a bunch of stuff, but at the end of the day, it's just like, well, you're just going to get pulled in so many different directions. And then, and then why, then the question is, is why are people calling you? Like, because really people want some expert or specialist who can solve a problem. Uh, rather than this kind of generalist who can solve a bunch of little problems, mm. but at the same time, you know, it, it's still valuable, but it's exhausting. Yeah. Long story. And short. it's cool that you had that, that experience where you had the opportunity to figure that out, that you didn't mm. like what you didn't like, but that's, a, that's interesting. Yeah. A couple of people now on the podcast, have said that, and I think Matt said it as well on, on a couple of podcasts ago, just like, be good at what you know. And you just said that basically yeah. the exact same thing. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's so and, interesting. And get, get so passionate, get so obsessive about what you know and, and just drive that because then that's really going to kind of set you apart in, you know, in a large group of people. You're like, well, if you're the kind of the leading expert in neurology or movement or whatever it is, great. When, when people have, when, when people need a new perspective or a new set of eyes to look at somebody, bring them in. Maybe they can add something, but if everyone's kind of learning the same stuff at the same time at the same quality, well, then we just kind of have a bunch of, you know, it almost becomes not mediocrity, but everyone's kind of looking through the same lenses at the same time. I mean, yeah, as you said, like there's no progression, is no. there? Because no one's sort of trying to be the leader in what they actually find is interesting. Yeah. They're just sort of picking off everyone's picking and choosing from everyone else. Mm. And you need someone to be like, you know what? I don't want to be the best. I want to be the best S&C coach, but I really want to focus in posterior chain work. What's the best way we right. can develop posterior chain? Um, so yeah, you just need people, as you said, to just yep. be the leaders. Yeah, I was. And, I was just going to mention also what I, what I found interesting. You saying that I was thinking today actually, um, starting like in the PhD route. And that's very specific and like very specific plantar flexion, yeah. injury rehab, whatever. And I was thinking, yeah, how many people 
are going to need my expertise in this such a small area, you know? And, and I think it yeah. kind of at this stage of your career, at least for me, I, I kind of have that sense of like, I kind of want to be able to do a bunch of things because it sets me sure. apart in that way. Cause who needs just this one yeah. obscure little tiny little question? Um, yeah. So, but, but maybe that's good. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, if you're do- sorry, what are you doing your PhD in David? Uh, so it's, uh, improving the assessment of plantar flexor function, um, in, right. yeah, with British athletics. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we know how important ankle mobility is for squatting and performance and jumping and, you know, all, all the things. Um, and you know, when we're, when we're specializing in something and we're trying to answer a question, we, you need to dive deep and be the expert in that field. That's what the, the PhD system is for. Mm-hmm. I think maybe at the end of it, you might, you know, and I don't know if you do it now, but you know, when I see an ankle sprain or some kind of plantar fasciitis or an Achilles issue, I zoom out. You'd be like, well, Mm. what's the balance like? What, what's the hip doing? What's the, what's Mm. the neural tension? What's the, what are the myotomes? What's the neck position? What's the rotation Mm. like? Because anything of that kinetic chain will alter plantar flexion because if the base isn't stable, say if you've got a tibialis posterior problem that, you know, that's been overstretched, well, your gastroc locks up, right? Because mm. it's got to control plant. It's got to control pronation. Because if mm. we overpronate, we lose. We we start to drive into the the knee, and then we we lose the hip, and then we cause low back issues. We cause instability at the kinetic chain. Hmm. So, so having that generalized know, knowledge allows you yeah. almost to be better right. at that specific one thing. Yeah, right, right. So that's where you, you got to be kind of a generalized specialist. Because right. Right. when people say, "Well, I'm a knee, I'm a knee guy, or I'm a hip guy," I'm like, "Yeah, but." there's so many other things that attach an influence to that part. How can you say that you're just going to treat knees? The knee, if it's painful, is typically the victim. It's typically the area where you're driving forces into, right? If you've got a knee that's rotating, well, I want to know what's happening at the foot. I want to know, can you, do you have proper dorsiflexion for push-off? Or are you doing something weird at the hip? Uh, do your hips rotate? Because if your hips don't rotate, you, need, you start to rotate through the knee. Uh, do you have a stable hip where the deep five are, are reflexively locking the hip in so that you can actually maintain control? If not, you overdrive the quads and you drive into the knee. So like, there's lots of, there's lots of things to look at, you know, is it neural tension? Do we have an L3, L4 myotomal issue where we've got some, oh, chronic low back issues that's pinching the nerve roots that actually supply the knee or the hip? Like that's all going to cause knee pain. So it's, this is why I love the profession is because you don't, you know, we, we can do look at things so many different ways and we can treat in so many different ways and you can learn all these things and put it into your scope of practice. Uh, but at the same time, it makes it tricky to be like, well, what do physios do? Uh, do you, you know, chiropractors, we know what chiros do. They're spine, spine experts, right? Well, make fix spines. Okay, great. Physios are like, is it massage? No, not quite. Like, but we do soft tissue stuff. Uh, are we moving experts sometimes, right? It, it really depends, but it, it's up to the practitioner to kind of specialize themselves inside of that very broad field. And, and with all the experience that you've had, you've been able to work obviously in elite sport and in many different elite sports. And with Matt and I, we want our direction kind of to lead that in in some way or another. And it'd be interesting just to hear 
I think a lot of people kind of know the pros of working in elite sport and in an exciting environment and being able to work with these people who are doing really cool things. Um, but it'd be interesting to hear about, about what surprised you the most about working in elite sport that maybe some people don't realize until you're in it. Um, the, the nice thing is, is the level of dedication I don't have to motivate them. Uh, I don't have to tell them, well, if you don't do these exercises, here are the consequences. Mm. So that was the refreshing part. Athletes can get in their heads a lot, probably a lot more, especially if something doesn't feel right or if something didn't happen the way it was. Uh, I've been fortunate. The athletes I worked with, they they were very smart athletes. They wanted to learn about their body. They took, they empowered themselves by learning. I would, take every opportunity to teach them about what's going on. I would teach them, treat, treat them like a student, show them like, Hey, see how this feels different. Yep. Okay. See how this is the neck is influencing your hip. Yep. Okay. We need to stabilize the neck. Oh, okay. So now they start to take control and they stop leaning or depending on me. My job primarily, especially with the, with the athletes is my job is to put myself out of a job. If I can teach you to be self-sufficient to know what you need, to have a form of self-assessment, then you don't need me. And then if something mm-hmm. isn't working, then we'll troubleshoot that together. And when mm-hmm. I left, when I did the, the camp with um, uh, Val Grenier and, and Mitch Gagnon out in Chile, um, the Alpine Canada hired me to kind of like troubleshoot some stuff. They had some issues going on that they couldn't figure out. And my, my, my first thing I said to them, like, look, my job is to put myself out of a job so that you don't need me. And they're like, what? I was like, yeah, because if you can self-manage this. We just flew you down here. What are you talking you about? Have, you don't need you. <laughs> you have 100% control over your destiny. You don't need to rely on, oh, I need, I need dry needling or I need, I, I need uh, soft tissue release before I go ski. You don't. But if you know, if you've got the tools and the knowledge to manage it, then you're good. Like you can't get mm. rattled. Mm. Um, and the cool thing with that was by teaching them how to self-assess and giving them the corrective exercises, they diligently did it and they skied better each day they got on the hill. And most of the time skiers will get tired as the camp gets longer. They actually got better the longer the camps. It was a three week camp. And it was really, really cool to see. So then the coaches are just like, what the hell are you doing with them? So (laughs) I'm teaching them. I've got this system and I'm teaching them this system, right? Of how to kind of fix themselves. And here we found some imbalances, showed them where it was, showed them the, the problems. And they're doing their homework and then it's translating to the hill. And then we're doing some, you know, visual and vestibular activation on the hill before they ski and they're getting faster. Great. And they're not, then they're not blowing up their backs, which was awesome to see too. So athletes are a lot of fun because they know the, they know the, the end result. If they don't put in the work, the right kind of work, then they don't get the medal. Okay. Clients. Uh, the general population, most, most of the population we work with, we're very lucky. They're very motivated. They want to learn. They don't want passive treatment, right? Mm-hmm. There's like, teach me about me. Awesome. We put them in the gym with the movement coaches, come back, we reset some stuff. Um, but oftentimes, because there's no goal, there's no end goal, there's no kind of progression sometimes, uh, they're like, well, I don't, I don't see the point in this. Well, well, but you wanted to pick up your child without back pain. Can you do that? It's about a 50-pound kid. So... We need to go deadlift some stuff. Mm. Oh, okay. It doesn't really change 
athlete versus non-athlete. It's really in, can you build that trust? Can you build, create that communication and connection with them? And if you're doing a good job, you can teach them why they need to do things, why the problems there in the first place, and then why, you know, they need to do what they need to do to get to the end goal. And I was just wondering at which point, at what point in your career did you sort of get that realization of actually, I want to be teaching these athletes. Like, was it a certain moment or how deep into the, into your career were you until you realized that? Um, not long. It was probably, I always had this propensity even early in my career to explain things to everybody. And maybe sometimes depending on the person, they're like, I don't really care about the details. Just tell me what I need to do. And that's fine. Like that's on me to understand that that's that type of person. They're not a, they don't want the details. They just tell me the how. And then there's some people who are, uh, they're more about, I need to feel as though you heard me and that I'm heard and I'm understood, right? They're more of those feelings. So I need to, you know, this is where as a clinician, you need to be a little bit of a chameleon and understand what type of person you're talking to. But coming back to your question, um, I enjoy that part. I think the, the teaching side of things and that aha moment that people's like, oh, I did that thing that you said and I measured it and it got better. Awesome. Or I'll have them answer questions to make sure that like, see if they're paying attention, if they truly understand. I think it's just that instinct of, I like to know the information I, as a former athlete, I'm going to use athlete in air quotes, um, <laughs> that I wanted to know the why. So explain this to me so that I can make sure this doesn't happen again. And that if it does, I know how to fix it. So it probably came from my own athlete mindset of, I need to understand why this happened to me and then what I need to do. Right. And, like and what do you do if, because <clears throat> that takes a lot of buy-in, not only for people to want it, want to learn, but then also take it on board and do it. Uh, I'm sure you've had clients that, or, or athletes or coaches even that don't want to learn. Uh, what, what, what do you do when you don't get buy-in or how do you go around setting yourself up the best way that you possibly can to make sure you get that buy-in from the get-go, whether it's an athlete or whether it's just a general population? It's, it's really setting the expectations. So if their expectation is to run a marathon, but yet they don't want to work on the mobility. They don't want to work on the strength and conditioning side of things. They're just like, Oh, just get me back to running. So just, you know, stretch my tight hamstrings, needle this so I can get back. And I'll be like, well, it's not going to get better because you're going to be back here on my table. Right. So setting the expectations early on and letting them know that in order to get to this goal, we need to do these things. This is my professional opinion. This is what I've seen in the past you're paying me a lot of money for my opinion and the answer. But if it's not the answer that you want to hear, then maybe we're not the right fit. Hmm. And I've had that, I've had that conversation with, you know, there was a point where I was getting up quite a few NHLers coming in and I told them, I'm like, here's my style. I've, it, it's had good success in the past, um, but you have to be an active part of this. It's not just show up, lift a bunch of weights, you know, sweat a bunch, crush yourself, and then piss off. You have to do the things prior, during, and after so that we get the most out of these sessions so that I can continue to push you each session. Because if you don't do the recovery, if you're not doing the movement prep, we're going to tweak stuff. 
You're not going to recover. The stress cup is going to be too full and I can't push you. And we, we mm. have lots of measurements for that. But as soon as they understand that, they're like, okay, I'm in. Mm. So it's really setting the expectations. You're like, mm. this is how we're going to do it. I want feedback. Let me know what works for you. What's your learning style? But I'm like, here's, I'll show them the, the path and, it, and it's their choice whether they want to take the path. And then I guess it's just staying true to then your, like, this is the way you do it and not them going like, oh, I actually don't want to do that. And they're like, oh, okay, well, maybe we can do something right. else. Right. Well, then, right. but then at that point, what are we doing? Right. Are right. you, are you looking for that, you know, that expert to push you or get you to the next level? Or are you, are mm -hmm. you just shopping to look for the person who just agrees with you? Like, yeah, we'll just do that. Mm. Right. There's, mm -hmm. there's wants and needs. And mm. it, it is a conversation that we have to have. And people are like, well, I want the gold medal. Okay, great. Okay. But I need you to do this to get to the mm. gold medal. So it, it's it, a lot of it has to do with the communication, the connection, and which then builds the trust. And they're like, okay, yep, I buy in. And I think that something you can draw from that that is really good is the fact that you've got to it's a, basically a jigsaw, you know, you, a bunch of puzzle pieces that you need to stick together and you have to be true to your own belief and values yep. and have confidence in all the experiences you've been able to learn from that you you're set in your ways and you know what you're trying to do. You're trying to do good for them and you've got to stay true to your beliefs and values, I guess, at the end of it. Yeah. So it, but hold on, holding on to beliefs and values, it's like holding on to convictions, but loosely because science changes, everyone's a little different. So we have a framework and we build off this framework, but if it's, if it doesn't hundred percent fit that person, we can adapt it as long as we stick to the same principles. So right. this is where a lot of clinicians and, and strength coaches will kind of chase their tail a little bit. I mean, not all of them, but what I've seen is they learn all these tools, all oh, these great exercises, this new piece of equipment, this needling technique, manual therapy, whatever. You have all these tools to solve specific problems. And, you know, everything won't work for everybody, but something will work for somebody. So having lots of tools is a great option. Now, the tricky part is, is when do you pull out the right tool at the right time for the right person? This is where if you have a system built on principles and frameworks, it will tell you what you need to do for that person, right? So in the AMT system, it's built on the fundamental principles of psychology, neurology, biology, and physics. Because physiotherapy is relatively new. Chiropractic is like they're relatively new in comparison to those. So the reason why it's built on psychology is because the first time that we help the person, we're having a conversation. There, I'm listening. They're telling me, oh, here's what happened in the past. Here's this. I'm asking questions. I'm diving deeper into that. I'm matching my body language. I'm matching my tone. Uh, well, I'll try and, you know, if, if their breathing is erratic, I'll try and match my breathing to try and bring them down. So there's a lot of communication and 90% of it is nonverbal. And then using the language is critical because people will come in and they'll be like, well, I told I had degenerative disc disease or I can't do this or I can't do that. I'm like, who says, right? Like, you know, we have all these, these diagnoses. So psychology, we have to break down psychology and get them to create trust in us first, because if they trust us, they'll let us in. Now we can do the physical exam. So the second part is neurology. The reason why neurology is number two is because neurology controls everything. 
It has influence on how we move, our breathing, our, our immune system, digestive system, everything. It's our states. And if somebody is coming in very sympathetic state, no change is going to be made because they're running away from imaginary tigers. But if we can bring their state down into a parasympathetic state, now we can create a shift and a change, and now they can learn something different. So on top of that, neurology falls into movement because if I lift my shoulder and I'm like, Ooh, I can't lift that there. But then all of a sudden I get somebody to do some head shakes with some VOR cancellations. And all of a sudden that shoulder moves. I didn't do anything to the shoulder, but I applied some kind of neurological stimulus that the nervous system liked and all of a sudden freed up that shoulder or that lot. Right? So we use movement as our measuring sticks, muscle testing and movement through neurology, because if we apply something that the nervous system likes, it increases movement and increases muscle output. If it doesn't like it, it puts the brakes on because what's the primary job of the nervous system? Don't die. Survival of the individual, survival of the species. That's it. That's the primary job of the nervous system. If you're going to give it one job, it's survival. Now, if we know how to tap into that and start playing around with the sympathetic parasympathetic states, now we have a way of communicating to the body. So if I put my hand on a peck and all of a sudden that shoulder moves up. I didn't do anything therapeutic, but I did apply a touch and a, and a type of input that the nervous system said, Ooh, I like that. I'm going to take the brakes off. That feels safe. If I apply compression on somebody's neck and all of a sudden that shoulder locks up, that's the nervous system saying, Oh, I don't like that. Let's not do that. So neurology is our feedback loop and it's through movement. Okay. Biology is how the cells and tissues respond to what we do. Either the words we use, uh, the, the, the manual therapy techniques we use, the exercises. So we're looking for tissue adaptation, okay? But anytime I apply some kind of friction, I'm going to increase blood supply to the area. I might be releasing a trigger point, whatever it is, but the nervous system still has to say, yes, I like it. No, I don't. So understanding biology and how we developed. How did we develop? Well, we developed from a series of tubes. And if we understand that we're a series of tubes, if you kink the hose or you kink the tube at one end, it will affect the, the other end. So <clears throat> understanding how we developed in the embryo and then how we developed from a motor perspective from the ground up, because babies are on their back, moving around, rolling around, that's where all the programming is developed. And it's through sensing first. We are sensory beings first. We respond to our environment. So children who don't have a very uh, exciting environment, they move and they walk later in life. But if there's lots of things around and lots of motivation for them to go after, especially small things to put in their mouth and choke, they move <laughs> faster, right? And they right. talk sooner. This has been shown. Children who move a lot talk relatively sooner, okay? Because language, especially the part of the cerebellum, lateral cerebellum is, is attached to language and behavior. And then we go into physics. The reason why physics is because there's laws that govern our world, our three-dimensional world. So we have laws that govern the physical world. And then we have quantum physics that looks at energy, matter, uh, vibration, frequency, and, and um, frequency, uh, sorry, uh, vibration, frequency, and uh, electricity. So if we understand how physics work, then it makes it easier to understand, well, if somebody has this overuse injury, so for example, if somebody's got this right low back issue, but their hip doesn't rotate and their T-spine doesn't rotate, guess where they're rotating into? The low back. Well, that overuse injury is actually a misuse injury, and we've accumulated too much energy into the facets on the right side of your lower back because your hips don't rotate and your T-spine doesn't rotate. So your body mm. created a compensation elsewhere. And then what do we do? Oh, let's just go massage the back. Yeah, but mm. if we redistribute those forces, 
into the hip and the T-spine where they're supposed to go, the back goes away, right? It's coming back to the same knee. If you got a knee that mm. works great, but you don't have an ankle that works great and you don't have the hip that works great, guess where all those forces are going? They're driving into mm. that meniscus. Now we have a overuse injury. I'm like, mm. no, it's not an overuse problem. You didn't take twice as many steps. Maybe you're driving, you're, you're overusing it because you're driving forces abnormally into it, but it's not because you took two, 20,000 steps on the right and you did 10,000 on the left. Hmm. Right. And then the last part of this, I'll close this up. So looking at physics, so when we go back, when you look at Newtonian physics, where it's all matter, and then you look at quantum physics, where it's vibration, frequency, and energy, well, thoughts create different frequencies, which create different signaling electrically in the brain that creates different responses in the body. So now we've got quantum physics that goes back to psychology. <laughs> So the AMT is built on these pillars and it's all in this orthopedic setting. So yeah. it's all weaved in. We don't, go into, we don't go into detail of that, but I wanted to kind of set the, mm. hey, here's principles that do not change. And now we've created something on top of those principles. I'm going to have to watch that back probably about yeah. 15 times just to make notes and all that. <laughs> that was incredible. No, that, that was, was amazing. Good. You said, you know, tools. Well, I mean, I guess that goes right back to what you're saying about being um, good at a lot of different things that allows you to hone in on the one thing that you're the expert in. And and talking yeah. about, like you said, you know, a lot of people might have tools and they use them in very specific ways. Is that kind of a mistake that you see a lot of PTs do, especially young PTs early in their career of, yeah. of you know, they have these great tools, but they only use them in, mm -hmm. in very specific areas. And how did you learn yeah. not to do that? Failure, a lot of failure. So I was, as soon as I finished physio school, I'm like, Oh, got to go do my levels. I'm going to go do manual therapy and learn manipulation. And right. I was chasing courses. I'm like, here's the flavor of the month. I would go learn a tool that solved a specific problem. And yeah. I would find a reason to use that tool on every single person. So <laughs> I was building a practice almost every month around a new tool <laughs> thinking like, this is going to fix everybody. And then all of a sudden right. it doesn't. I'm like, this thing sucks. Get rid of it. Let's go learn something new. Right. Yeah, yeah. But it right. helps some people, but not everybody. And this is where a lot of clinicians get trapped is they go learn uh, needling, dry needling, or they go learn manipulation or soft tissue, whatever it is. And they build their practice around a tool. There's a big problem mm. in that. If you were going to build a house, would you hire a contractor that only used a hammer? If I wanted it to be not. done in seven years, maybe. Oh, you would, you would I really hope not. Because <laughs> if he only uses a hammer, it's not going to be a very good house. I want a contractor <laughs> who can use all the tools at the right time for the right purpose. Right. Mm. It's no different in clinical work. <clears throat> but people get pigeonholed. They either do it to themselves or uh, it gets done to them because they're like, oh, you know what? I got IMS on my QL, my quadratus and it freed up my back, you should go for your back pain. And then the patient comes in, I want to get IMS for my back. Okay, how about we assess that first and find out if we mm. actually need to do that. So mm. we, we need to step back, use clinical reasoning, have a system that will actually guide us to the true cause and not just chase around symptoms. Because we'll get caught, oh, I have pain here. Well, maybe we just needle that or maybe we just ultrasound that or we just manip that or, or massage it, right? Feels good. Because you've got this tissue that's in a sympathetic state and the human touch, just touching alone will actually reduce the electrical charge in that. 
reduce the muscle spasm, and it feels good for a, about a day or two, and then it comes back. Well, why did it come back? Well, because you didn't get to the root cause. That muscle wired back up because something else around it isn't doing its job. I tell mm -hmm. my clients, muscles are dumb. They're only doing what the brain is telling them to do. And is it to stabilize something, protect something, or you know, limit movement? So if you've got a muscle that's just kind of being told to stay turned on for a couple of different reasons, but you don't actually get to the root cause, it's going to come back. So then, well, we need to needle it again, or we need to strip it out and massage it again. It didn't get, it didn't get better. It felt good, but it didn't get, it didn't get good. And one of the things that we, you know, tell clients here, we've got a, you know, a good size strength and conditioning side of things. I said, look, the clinical side, this is where you feel good. This is where we change the inputs and we create space and we change your state. But where you get better is actually in the gym. When you learn to move differently and you learn to manage this and you get strong and we get range of motion back, now it goes away. So you feel better on this side, but you get better on that side. It's not even about like, you know, people, you know, talking about gym, everyone's, straight, everyone's minds go straight to like resistance training. You got to lift the weights. But all it is nowadays is longevity. Talking about movement as a whole, you want to be able to move well. You don't want to be able to say I can bench 200 kilograms. I can't, but say I can just for this scenario. Um, that's all good. But if I can't, if I can't sort of, if my hip mobility is terrible and it's making it so difficult to run or to even walk, yeah. what good is that bench? So yeah, it's just getting in that gym and just working on your movement yeah. as a whole. When, when all my friends started turning 30, all the guys I used to work out with, they're like, you know, big dudes, still lifting heavy weight, still the same, you know, programs that they were doing in their twenties. They come into me like, I still want to hurt anymore. This sucks. It's like, yeah, welcome to 30. But because they didn't change and evolve their programming, they're still lifting heavy with high frequency, like they're in their 20s. I was like, mm. I can't do this. But you can still do some of this, but there's a lot of accessory stuff to balance out the body. You've been doing too much of this, too much strength, not enough mobility, not enough control work, not enough of breath work, not enough of, you know, whatever it is. So they created an imbalance. And when there's any kind of imbalance or disruption in homeostasis in the body, it sets off the, the nervous system and the signal saying, hey, I'm going to create some discomfort in here to make you pay attention to me. And if mm. you keep ignoring it, I'm going to keep turning up the volume. And if you keep ignoring it, I will create an injury over time. <laughs> right. That's what pain is. I mean, pain what... is just a signal. It's not, the, yeah. not, it's not always the cause. But rarely is it the cause. It's just a signal in the body saying, pay attention to me. I'm going to create some disruption here, but it's your job to now find out why that's there. It's like a lighthouse just getting progressively brighter and brighter, trying to just exactly. get everyone to focus on that one spot. And I mean, I'm dealing it with it now with some of the rugby lads. They're still doing the programs they were doing when they were 20. And as they're getting older and sustaining more injuries, <laughs> I mean, they'll come in one of the lads, his shoulder. I've tried everything. I've tried looking online. Yeah. I've tried that, but I you know, his shoulders are still AC joint area. It's killing him. And I'm just telling him, you got to just sort of, you find new things. You got to keep on trying yeah. new things in a way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'll, they're stuck in their ways. Some of them. I just did a webinar for, um, um, taking the complexity out of the shoulder complex. And, uh, I did a, I did a workshop a couple of years ago on going through these kind of pillars, these seven practical pillars of looking at your posture, your breathing, your grip, thoracic spine, scap, uh, core and then glenohumeral joint. So it's kind of the part of the system that we use in the AMT. 
but uh, I'll send you guys the that link and, and whatnot. You can have a so you can help out your your. App. Oh, that would be amazing! Yeah, that's great. Some, I'm sure we'll you'll give love you a it. framework and some guidance as to okay, we'll check these things, and if they're off kilter, fix those first. Go to the shoulder last. The, the shoulder is actually the last thing that fix. Yeah. You got to fix mm. and clear everything around it before. Because again, coming back to physics, the shoulder is the most mobile joint in the body. So if mm. I don't move at my neck very well, or if I don't move through my T spine or my scapula is stuck, where am I putting all that energy into? right into mm. the shoulder because it's easy. Mm. The body will ignore what's stiff because it's not efficient. It, energy conservation, the conservation of energy, the body won't waste energy trying to fight a range. It would rather just move into the easy side, but then all of a sudden now you've got an overuse problem. Mm. So when people mm. come with shoulder issues, I got to clear out their neck. Does that neck rotate? Does it extend? Yeah. If not, I got to fix that first because your brain cares more about your neck than the shoulder. Why? Because the cervical spine is one of the primitive reflexes. I got to look for threats really quickly. And if I can't, I'm going to get eaten, right? So the neck reflex comes before anything below it. And the brain cares more about the neck than the, than the shoulder because it's closer to the brain. Supercomputer sits up here. If, if young PTs and even, even strength coaches kind of come in with some kind of framework that, that you can build from or some kind of system that you can build from, uh, it's just going to make things a lot easier to progress. And then when you start to learn new tools or new techniques, it's easier to mm -hmm. integrate them in. And that's, again, like not to keep going back, but that's, that's one of the things that I saw as, as a clinician is the more I learned, the less I realized I knew and the more I forgot. Because, you know, you're kind of in this vicious cycle of, well, this one thing works for 50% of the people. I'm just going to keep using it. But if, you know, creating the AMT, I wanted to create something that isn't going to change much over time because it's based on mm -hmm. fundamental principles and, and development and motor learning and neurology. So, you know, and then you can plug and play and then you just test, you know, as new things kind of develop, as you learn new things, you can kind of test it and you bounce it off that framework. And if it, if it fits, great. And if not, we got to either find out, okay, is there a problem with the tool or is there a problem with the test? Right. So does the framework need to kind of adjust a little bit to either um, integrate that new tool or if the tool is showing that it doesn't really hold up very well against kind of like these stress tests in the, in the framework or in the system, then maybe you just don't use it. Mm. Or maybe just put it in your back pocket. It's something that you might use on 5% of the population, but not a majority. Okay. So like I said earlier, um, everything doesn't work for everybody, but something will work for somebody. So learning as many things as possible is helpful because it's going gonna, it's gonna to arm you mm. with more tools. The question that I have in my mind right now is, is we can't all come to concept of movement, unfortunately, and, and have you as our physio, although that yeah. sounds like it would be unbelievable <laughs> and a lot of work as well. Uh, <laughs> but but if, if someone's looking for a physio, they need a physio, what would you say are maybe, you know, two or three things that that they should look for in that physio on that initial inspection to be like, yeah, actually, I, I, I'm going to come back here or I'm not going to come back here? Yeah. So my answer was always before, you know, look for a specific credential. And my opinions changed on that because... I know clinicians who are really good with the credential and I know clinicians who are really crap with the credential. So 
you know, when, when people are looking for a good physio is, you know, it's helpful to see if what their education is like, what, what kind of courses they've taken outside of physio school. So like, this is where the business card kind of comes in handy where, Oh, look at all the letters at the end of their name. <laughs> it's not just kind of like a little bit of a brag sheet, even though early on you're just like, look how smart I am. Yeah. Um, but it also helps people to, to look at, Oh, wow. They, like they've learned a lot of stuff. They put, you know, they put a lot of time in extra education. So I'm going to go see them. But any, any good clinician should do things consistently. They should have some form of feedback where they can check their work. Uh, they should always, and I don't, you know, you don't want to use deterministic language, but always should, manual therapy should always be complemented with some kind of exercise, some kind mm-hmm. of something to lock it into place, something to complement it. Because if you're just doing the manual technique and then the person walks off the table, going to come back because nothing's changed it feels different but it doesn't mean that that person's moving different and it doesn't mean that it's going to create a change in the long run so uh looking for a clinician who who's well versed uh who's lots of tools in their toolbox who consistently has some way of checking their work to make sure uh it's in place having some you know having use of modalities so some of the things that we require clinicians to come in, or if they don't have it, we provide the tools for them. Um, they have some form of needling because acupuncture and, and dry needling is used a lot here. Um, it's just come to that expectation, but acupuncture, especially I love because you can use it for, you know, uh, uh getting people to relax. You can use it for, in, in terms of increasing blood flow, removing tension, all that stuff. Dry needling is great. It's a hammer that I pull out once in a while. If I've got something really stubborn, but I don't use it on everybody. Um, and then, you know, having a really good understanding of movement in general, and then exercise prescription to complement what the manual therapy mm-hmm. has done. And if you've done it right, you know, people can touch their toes, people's shoulders, they unlock right in that one session. So there should be some ability to create change and also measure change. And it's tricky to do that because there's lots of good courses out there. Uh, like I said, I've done a lot of them, whether they're movement-based, kettlebell, Movnat, needling, manipulation, soft tissue, got lots of tools. And when I go through, when I go through my system, all of a sudden I'll get to this junction of, oh, is this a joint problem? Is this a soft tissue problem? Is this a neurological problem? Is this a nerve mobility problem? And then I pull out the right tools to kind of manipulate or unlock that part of the body. And then we get that person to move and feel differently into it. And all of a sudden we measure change. Dry needling. You brought it up. I uh, love it. It's a great tool. Yeah. Uh, it's a great hammer. Um, but again, if we're just kind of chasing after trigger points and hitting that with a needle and not truly understand why is that trigger point there in the first place, guess what? You're going to needle it two, three days from now or next week when that client comes back in. Hmm. So think of any modality as we're changing inputs. Okay. We are feeling beings first. Even in utero, our vestibular system has developed by the, by the end of the second trimester. So baby's already orienting itself to gravity. So, and then in response to gravity, baby's moving around in, in response to gravity. And then baby comes out into the environment and it's feeling the air and the surface and it's responding to touch, mom's touch, the, the surfaces, their bed. So we have to understand that any modality, whether it's light touch, a needle, a modality, it's changing inputs and the nervous system's evaluating whether this is a wanted input or an unwanted input. 
And we can convince ourselves through psychology that, oh, that pain is so good. Like, oh, it hurts so good. Well, the pain that you're experiencing is probably at a higher level and the pain you came in with is probably lower. So it kind of changed that perspective. And also during that pain and sweating on the table during needling, you probably released a bunch of endorphins that also block pain. And then it lasts for a couple hours and then it comes back. So making sure that we're applying the right inputs to the body and that they're staying and holding and then applying the right outputs, which is the form of movement is complementing those new input changes and that new awareness. So there's, there's no good tools. There's no bad tools. It's just using the right tool at the right time for the right purpose on the right person. You say you've got to make, I guess it's uh, going back to that first point that you said as well. When I wrong, well, I said uh, out of the gate, I said that you got to be set on your beliefs and values. And then you rightly corrected me and say, well, you can have those beliefs and values, but you also got to adapt to the athlete that you're working with. And I guess that's one thing I'm learning through the beginning of my sort of career, that it's a constant adaptation process. Uh, all your athletes that you're working with, they've got different needs that are going to be uniquely different from the person right next to them, even though they're playing in the same position. So I guess that adaptation is key, really. Yeah, yeah but the adaptation happens within, mm. within your system. Mm. Right. And if it's if it's a, an adaptable, flexible system that's still adhered to principles, then it, it should fit because the principles are everything that are just kind of like universal truths. Yeah. Right. Mm. But mm. Th- what changes is the person's belief or the person's individual anatomy might be different. Like I don't get a lot of athletes to do heavy back squats. Mm. Their anatomy just doesn't allow for it. Now, if they're competing in powerlifting, yeah, obviously yeah. doing back squats. But we're going to do a lot of things around that to make the squat easier for them so that when they load the bar on their back, they can get greater force output because there's less resistance in their body. If their nervous system is happy with the pattern and it's so good at it, well, output goes up. But if, if they got a little bit of a tweaky ankle and they hit the bottom of that squat and they get a pinch and it could be mild, they're going to instinctively shift away from that ankle. Now we've taken that back squat and loaded it up onto the other side. Now yeah. we have like a 70, 30. Hmm. And you do that enough. Now we've got, oh, my left knee's getting cranky. Well, your left knee's getting cranky because you're avoiding on the squat the pinchy uh, okay. ankle. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we might just need to adjust that to a front squat, or we might need to do some single leg work for a period of time to work on that squat pattern mm. at kickstand or a Bulgarian. We can still strengthen the legs, but until we get that imbalance sorted out, we can't do bilateral movements until the Im- imbalance is corrected, or mm. else we're going to cause an injury. This has been an incredible time of just being able to learn from your experiences. You don't want to take up too much of your time, too much more of your time, um, because that that honestly, <laughs> that was incredible. Um, we're I'm I'm so happy, uh, and I cannot wait to listen back to think- that. Before we finish, uh, we have one 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 more thing, um, and then Matt, you can say what you were just about to say. Sure. Uh, we we always do this. We have just quick fire questions which is just like a little fun way where we get to know yep. the guests a little bit more, where, where our listeners get to know the guests a little bit more. Um, so Matt, Matt will do that after he says whatever he was about to say, and then, and then we'll wrap it up. Yeah. I was basically just going to say that I, I just wanted to say thank you for coming on and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I hope that sometime in the future, we can definitely do a part two because just from this short window of 50 minutes, I'd say uh, I've, I've learned so much and it's just inspired me to learn more about stuff that I, as an SNC coach, that I never actually took time to think about. So I just wanted to say thank you. It was my pleasure, Matt.
Awesome. And then, yeah, now time for the quick fire questions. So you've just got five questions and I'll ask them in succession pretty quickly. Uh, we'll get it started. Are you a snowboarder or a skier? I am a snowboarder by heart. I, any opportunity I get on, I can be on my board. I'm on my board, but I do appreciate skiing. It is a fun skill that I, I got better when I was with the ski team and listening to the coach yell at the athletes uh, of what they're doing wrong. I picked up a lot from that. So I can now teach, teach my kids to a level of proficiency, how to ski if they want to ski. But I, I appreciate both sports. Um, uh, but I still, I love my board because I still like to go, you know, playing around in the park. <laughs> awesome. And then most difficult injury you have faced or had to deal with? Uh, personally or professionally? Uh, professionally. You know, like when it comes to anything from a high trauma, you know, busted up car accident legs. Oh, wow. Those are always tricky. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you an experience I had with the ski team. My first year with the ski team, we were down in Chile. Perfect bluebird day. We we're training Super G. Snow was perfect, hard. And I get a call on the radio saying, uh, and Speedy was our ski tech. Uh, and, he's, and he's Kiwi. Speedy. He's like, uh, tell him, mate, you uh, came went down <laughs> and you might want to bring your bag. I don't know how good my accent is, but uh, I was like, okay, man. Uh, so I go down and I come over the knoll and I see Cam, one of my athletes, with his leg on backwards. Oh. And I'm like... Okay. Oh, wow. I can see the bone sticking through the speed suit. Oh. So I'm skiing down and I was like, what's up, buddy? He's like, yeah, I think I broke my leg. I'm like, yep, pretty sure you did. And like, when you see something like that, you have to be calm. And because if they see you mm. freaking out, they will freak out. Mm. And if you start to panic in any manner or they sense it, they will go into shock. So I was like, okay. Uh, so I call the radio and we had to transport them. It had taken for emergency surgery down in Santiago. I had to get a private jet. Uh, and then, oh, an hour after that, one of the Alberta ski team kids did the exact same thing. So now we have to wait at the hospital in Chien <laughs> to fly both of them for emergency surgery or else because you've got about a five or six hour window with a, with a, a compound fracture like that because the vascular supply is compromised and you can lose the leg. Oh, man. So Jeez. that was, and this is my first year with the ski team, first trip away like overseas and i was like all right all my at stuff is coming back into play <laughs> yeah no kidding and no yeah, speak, yeah. Speak, nobody speaks english oh wow so i had to use whatever spanish i knew in the you know we had to take them down the mountain uh in the ghostbuster wagon that was the ambulance that they took us to the hospital in was the old ghostbuster <laughs> and uh yeah like wow from a getting him better he came back the year, the next year. Um, but from a, from a high stress situation and managing that, that was probably one of the, mm. one of the harder things that you're, that I had to deal with anything clinic, you know, you got challenges because people aren't progressing, you know, or just like, ah, you know what, like I, I've done all you can do. You know what in clinic, the hardest thing to do for anybody is say, I can't help you anymore. I don't know what, yeah. and I hate, that, but I know enough that I know when, when I've reached kind of my plateau or how much I can really assist somebody, but I will find the right person for that person so that they continue on. So it's the hardest thing is, is always knowing your limitations, but that, yeah. that comes with age. Yeah. Wow. I mean, just what, what an experience having to do with that with your first year at the ski team. Um, but yeah. And then I, I guess this sort of could feed in, but greatest memory so far in sports or, or in, and life. 
Yeah. Oh, life. Um, finding, you know, the love of my life, my children, creating a great Come business on. with my, so my wife is my business partner. So we both, we open the clinic together. Oh, amazing. She manages it. And, yeah. and then people ask, uh, how do you, how do you work with your spouse? I'm like, it's not hard because we have two completely different roles. I manage like the clinical oh, okay. education side. She manages the business, the marketing, the admin. So we have very different roles and we both respect each other's roles and we don't step on each other's toes. So that's how as that's a couple amazing, you man. stay together and because we're so passionate about the business. Like we're excited to talk about it outside of, of work, right? Like how do we keep growing this thing? And, you know, so there's no such thing as like, work-life balance like work is life but we integrate it and our children hear us talking about it so they're learning about entrepreneurship and they're learning about managing people and all these things so um there's you know there's i have lots to be grateful for and and uh yeah that's amazing just just dropping bombs every 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 question you yeah. answer it's amazing um i guess the next one who's the famous who's the most famous person in your phone book in my phone book Whew. It's obviously David. <laughs> oh, <laughs> unreal. The social That's media funny. star. There we go. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> let me say, uh, Matt, Matt Bolesky is probably one of my highest profile uh, athletes that I've worked with. I worked with him for about eight years. So um, it was cool getting him. It was on a referral with, with uh, Steve Downey. Oh, wow. And Matt. That's a referral. Like, a bubble player, AHL, NHL. And then that year I got to work with him. He actually got his, he had his best year yet during the strike. And then he got a big contract and then, and then he had two great seasons with Anaheim and then he got an even bigger contract with Boston. So it was cool. And he's a very smart athlete. He put in the work, but he actually learned a lot, implemented a lot that he was taught. Um, you know, like working with Kelsey and, and Kelsey Sirwell yeah. and Brady Lehman, uh, I would put them up there. And Kelsey is also just a, a wonderful human being. Uh, it was so fun to get to know her. Kelsey's yeah. lovely. Yeah, so I think as a physio, as a physiotherapist, she's, I think, going to just do absolutely amazing. She's going to be great. Yeah, no doubt. And then final question. This might be a bit on uh, the other side of Canada, but uh, if you were stuck on a desert island, what would your one item be? Do I have my family with me? Just yourself, just yourself. <laughs> Oh, just myself. We're not used to follow-up <laughs> questions. Yeah, I might, if I can't have my family, I might as well just bring a kettlebell with me. <laughs> kettlebell. <laughs> That's hilarious. He's alone, but he's going to be huge. I'll just swing life away. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Oh, And then finally, is there anything you would like to promote and uh, where can people find you? Yeah. So the main thing we're launching uh, the advanced movement therapist certification. So level one is ready. It's, it's already available for purchase. The level one at amtcertified.com. Level two is still in a little bit of uh, editing, but it will be ready in the next couple of weeks. So we're excited about that. It's a complete 25 hours of pre-recorded um, digital content professionally done with uh, PowerPoints, a 550 page manual total. Um, and it's, it's really like the framework. It's the thing that we created here in the last decade. It's taken me over six years to put together and, um, I'm, we're, we're really proud of that. So uh, I had a great team around me to kind of refine it. And, um, yeah, so we're super, and this is for anybody who's a movement expert, who's interested in movement, uh, who trains, uh, rehabs, 
if you if you believe and know that people need to move differently after during rehabilitation and move differently in sport like this is this is where you start so your new grads all the way to your new grads who are looking for that first course um, here's the framework to start your career and for clinicians who are 20 plus and they've got so many tools and they want to simplify things here you go mm. so it's it's a really it works across a lot of spectrums, a lot of different professions, and anybody who who works into in the movement science field. But uh, you can find me at uh, my Instagram is swales.tom. My YouTube is Tommy Swales. I do a lot of long version videos on that, so you can clip off a lot of things like that. A lot of free content on the amtcertified.com, as well as some uh, uh, some shorter courses as well. That's amazing. And if you're in the barrier Toronto in the Thank Toronto so area, much. Com Physio. It's in Barrie, right? Yeah. So Calm Physio um, is the the clinic name in Barrie. So it's in uh, 45 minutes north of Toronto, um, 5,000 square foot uh, physio and sports performance facility here. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Awesome. Definitely get on following Tom. I've thoroughly enjoyed following and stalking Tom, as he said <laughs> earlier before we started recording the last, I don't know, five <laughs> years since 2019. Some great content in there. Um, uh, so Tom, we really, really appreciate you coming on. This has been incredible. If there's ever a chance that we get to cross paths again in any type of way, that'd be that'd be amazing. But we really, really appreciate your time uh, for coming on here. That it, honestly is it, it was incredible. So thank you so, so much. I appreciate you guys. Absolutely.